Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here with you. It's an honor to be able to speak again. Uh, this is the second time that I'm speaking in a Sunday morning service, so still feels kind of new, but the faces are familiar. You guys look great this morning. Uh, my name is Jason Foster. For those of you guys who don't know my name, I'm on the church council here, also the youth leader for Inside Out um, with the youth group. So uh, just to give you a heads up of what these next few weeks will look like, I'm going to be speaking today, and uh, today is the eighth message in our gospel series called What is the Gospel? David will be speaking next week. The week after that, we actually have a guest speaker. His name is Bob Sorge. Has anybody ever heard of Bob Sorge by any chance? A few hands, yeah. He's an author and speaker. Um, he's also, he used to be a worship leader, and so he has an amazing testimony, and so I would encourage you guys to make sure that you're here. He's going to be here for our uh, morning and evening services, not next week because David is speaking, but the week after that. And then the week after that, David will be wrapping up the series. He'll be uh, doing the 10th message on what is the gospel. So we're continuing our series this morning on what is the gospel. So we're on week 8 of 10. And uh, last week, David spoke about um, the gospel and the kingdom. Do you guys remember that message? He talked about how God will restore everything to the way that it was originally created to be, which is awesome. And this morning, I'm going to be sharing about the gospel is about we, not just me. A week before I began seventh grade, I received my seventh grade schedule in the mail. Uh, I don't, I'm not even sure if they do that anymore, but they would mail out our schedules for the new year. And so I would go to the mailbox and I would check it. And so this was like a week before school actually began. And uh, it's kind of an exciting and uh, nerve-wracking time at the same time because the first question that I have had when I opened up the mail and got my schedule was, what kids, what friends will I have in my classes? And so that was the nerve-wracking part. Am I going to know anybody in my school day in the classes that I'm attending? And so that was the big nerve-wracking thing for me. And so after I opened up my schedule, I would immediately go to my house phone. Do you guys remember house phones? How many of you still actually have a house phone? Let me see. That's actually a lot, a lot more than I expected. It's the house with the phone cord plugged into the wall. That has like a spiral-wrapped cord for maybe the youngsters in here who have no idea what a house phone is. And so, I don't know, I'm not this old, but uh, you guys remember the rotary phones that you would have to take the finger and go around in the circle and wait for it to go all the way back up and then hit it again, take like two minutes to make a phone call? So um, I would go to my phone, and, and I would get on it, and I would start calling down the list of friends, and what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to see what of my friends are actually going to be in my classes, and so... After I kind of got down to the last one, I was a little bit sad because I didn't have too many friends in my classes in the seventh grade. So I hung up the phone, and after that, lo and behold, my phone rang, and I answered it, and it was a friend of mine. He wasn't a close friend. He was actually more of an acquaintance, and his name was Paul Sherrard, and I remember Paul Sherrard because... He was such a big Philadelphia Eagles fan living in Minnesota, and I was like, what's up with that? Every time that I would go to homeroom, he would have like on a Philadelphia Eagles jacket or hat, and it, he just kind of stuck out. He was wearing all green when we are in a you know, school of all purple for the Vikings fans. And uh, the thing that kind of amazed me about Paul calling me is I didn't give him my phone number, and so that kind of creeped me out because he called me. And so he was actually doing the same thing that I was doing. He was like, hey, Jason, I want to see if you're in any of my classes. Let's compare schedules. And so we went through first period, second period, third period, fourth period. And then by the fifth period, we actually shared a class together. We were going to be in fifth period earth science. 
And so on the first day of school, I walk in the class, and I'm, I immediately meet eyes with Paul. And then what do we do? We sit together. We combine our desks. And so we were hanging out. The teacher comes out, really nice guy, and he starts talking about what this school year is going to look like in earth science class. And so he went through the class criteria. He went through how he's going to weight our grades and how much the tests will be, you know, part of your grade. And then he actually said that we're going to be doing a school project or a, a group project together in groups of three. And so Paul and I are like immediately like, well, we're going to buddy up and then we need to find a third person. And so we started looking around the class and we see a kid sitting across the classroom named Jeff. Now, we didn't know Jeff too well. He was an acquaintance of ours too. We knew he was a good kid. We knew that he was smart. And so we decided that we were going to partner with him. And now we have our group of three. Um, after class, we actually got together in the hallway and we came up with a uh, set of dates that we would get together outside of school the teacher was talking about, your science projects will be to make an analog timer. It was really confusing, but he basically said, I'm going to you know, hold a stopwatch for this uh, you know, project, and we're going to time you to see if you can keep time of some sort. And so we decided to make a tube that was wrapped in a spiral where we would put water on the top. And the idea was, was by the time it exited the bottom, it would take exactly five seconds, and that's how we were going to keep time. Now, this was actually a difficult thing to calibrate because once we put the water on top the first time, it literally took like 30 seconds for it to reach the bottom. And so, you know, logic would reason. We need to get some, rid of some of the material. And so we fiddled around with this. And Paul and I were really involved. We, we were always hands-on, and Jeff was always sitting off to the side. And it kind of irritated us that he didn't want to be involved more. And that's the thing about group projects. You don't know what that person's work ethic is going to be. You're not really sure how you work in a group together. So Jeff was really hands-off, and Paul and I were really hands-on. Time started ticking, and we started running out of time. We only had three weeks to do this project. And so by the time that we were on, the, <clears throat> on our last day, it still could not keep five seconds, and we were, like, losing our minds. And we get together, and lo and behold, guess who doesn't show up? Jeff. Jeff doesn't show up on our last day that we're working on this project together. And Paul and I look at each other. We're like, wouldn't you know it? We were so frustrated with him that he would not show up and contribute. And so I want to ask you guys this morning, how many of you have actually had that wonderful opportunity to actually work in a group project together with people who you don't really know too well? Let me see some hands. It's a really awkward thing to happen. You guys don't know what you're getting into until you guys start actually working together. But Paul and I, on that last day, we actually stayed together, and we worked, and we probably worked until 9 o'clock on Sunday night, and my mom was really upset. She's like, you needed to be home getting ready for the new um, school week. And so Jeff hardly contributed any work to our project, and Paul and I, we picked up his slack, and then Monday morning, we presented our science project to the class and to the teacher, and we actually received an A. And all three of us received an A. And we were happy about it, but to this day, I wonder if Jeff is still riding on the coattails of his co-workers, of his co-workers up the ladder of success. And I really do wonder that. See, when one member is absent, missing, or lacks in contribution, the rest of the members suffer. We live in a society, don't we, that places a, a ton of value on individualism, Right? We're a me-centered culture. Everything is always about me, what I want, what my desires are, what I want to do, what I want to eat, you know, where I want to live. 
we're, pre- we're pressured into defining ourselves with an image that we put on and then try to sell to others as a genuine thing. We do it with the type of people we hang out with. We do it with the clothes that we wear, the way that we do our hair, with the way that we speak, with the way that we interact with each other. It's all about what we've accomplished, what we have achieved. And I want you to do me a favor. I want you to remember back to a time with me. I want to rewind right now. Think about the first time. I mean, there's going to be a few people here who don't even have this, but I want you to remember back to the first time that you set up a social media account. Okay? What picture did you choose? Did you choose a special picture that maybe framed your face in a, in a nice angle, or did you take it from up top because you didn't want to take it from the bottom because maybe you'd have a double chin? Or did you make duck lips like some people do in a Facebook picture? Was the light just right? What clothes did you wear? What did you put underneath interests? Did you have to embellish your interests at all to kind of fluff up yourself and maybe add a little bit of you know, interesting topics about yourself? What about this? Were you honest with your social media account? You see, the digital platforms specifically designed to bring us together, we actually end up making about ourselves. The we turns into me, and we do this more than with just our social media accounts. The danger that presents itself when we become so focused on ourselves is that we eventually don't even realize how self-centered that we've become how everything is turned inward. And we stop looking outwardly towards the other people around us. We start to turn that into me. We become oblivious to it while trying to have relationships or be involved with one another. We lack that real connection and that responsibility to each other because we're always looking at self. We can essentially become an island unto ourselves and blinded from the sight of our own relationships. Think about this. A group of friends, a work group, church, or even your family can become nothing more than a place and an opportunity for you to shine brighter than those around you. We end up taking that spotlight and shining it directly on ourselves And we come preoccupied with thoughts with how you can achieve personal attention or gain from others from that situation. It's a really, really devastating thing that we do to ourselves. But don't lose heart. You guys are sitting out around here because I'm talking about depressing things. But listen, I want you to stay with me. There's hope. And we're getting to that. Don't lose heart. God has a different plan for us. He created us to be a healthy, active part of a body, right? Amen. He wants us to be in community together, just as he's in community in and of himself and with us. God exists in three person in a perfect communion, the Trinity, and God created us in his own image, so it would stand the reason that he wants us to live and exist in a healthy community. Today we're going to talk about the role of the body of Christ and our responsibility to the Lord and to one another. And the truth about all of this is, is the gospel is about we, not just me. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 22 together. It'll also be up here on the screen behind me. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Let's read it. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. In this passage, Paul is teaching us that the gospel is about we, not just about me. Jesus came to bring you in the household of God. Isn't that good news? Think about it. The king of heaven, unlike any earthly king, left glory, left the riches of fair, left being seated at the right hand of God to come and redeem his people. He left the comfort of heaven for the danger of earth. And he knew before he even left what the plan was. And he came to rescue us. He came to rescue you and me. This is the heart of the gospel. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says it this way. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all. Isn't that awesome? It's sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. The sacrifice of him is sufficient for you and I. He did it once, and he will never do it again. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died. For who? For sinners. To bring you safely home to God. You have been brought home because Jesus was willing to be sent out from his home in heaven. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for me. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel is much broader than that. It's much richer than that. We live in what may be the most individualistic society that has ever existed. Everything is about looking out for yourself even at the expense of others. How many of you guys have heard the term throw under the bus? Have you guys ever been thrown under the bus? (laughs) I'm sure you have. I've been thrown under the bus quite a few times, but it's okay. It's my job title at work. But, uh, But listen to me. We live in the most individualistic society ever. Everything is about self gain. It's about, you know, jockeying for position. It's about climbing the ladder of success. It's about getting to the top no matter what the cost outshining people around you. But God didn't save you so that you would have one more opportunity to outshine the people around you, okay? He saved us to be a new people. And looking back into the Old Testament, it was always the plan from the beginning to make a new people. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God chose Abraham for a special assignment. He was picked for a mission. And it was ultimately to become a new people, okay? It was about building a nation. God was always thinking about forming a people. Whenever he chooses anybody, actually, in the New Testament, it was ultimately for the good of others, for the good of those around the leader. And Paul teaches that we're now fellow citizens with the saints. A citizen, what does that mean? It means to have part ownership, You know, it means to have part ownership in a kingdom. He says, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You and I are citizens of the kingdom of God, of heaven. 
And that's amazing. We are fellow citizens, which means that we're part of a new kingdom complete with new loyalties and a new way of doing life together. And being a Christian means you pledge allegiance to that same king as all the other Christians around you. You live your lives by the same values and with the same kingdom mindset because we are people of God. That means that we do kingdom work. Amen? God is a God who's focused on mission. That means that we're a people who are focused on mission. Amen? Being a Christian means that we worship the same king and that we are part of that kingdom mindset. On the other hand, though, we're joining a household. And when you join a household... Who are the other people in that house? They're part of your, they're part of your family. They're part of your family. And so this is more than just a citizen to citizen relationship. This is more than just rubbing shoulders with one another here in church or outside of church. This means that we're becoming actively a part of each other's lives, that we actually take action and not just sit back. It's nice to rub shoulders every once in a while. It's nice to just kind of come in and hang out, chill, and say hello, and then storm out of this building and get on with our lives. But we aren't called just to tolerate each other. We're not called just to rub shoulders with one another. We're commanded. Listen, we are commanded to love one another. Right, Mac? To love one another, Mac. You need to love me. You need to love me. But listen, a family that shares the same blood, we're the family that shares what? The blood of who? The blood of Christ that was bought at a great price. We need to do more than just rub shoulders with one another. We need to be actively involved with each other in each other's lives. Finally, Paul introduces one more metaphor here. Paul loved metaphors. He did it quite a bit. He wrote it quite a bit. He calls Jesus the chief cornerstone. And he says that we're being fitted together into a building that will grow into the temple of the Lord, a place for the Spirit of God to dwell. Isn't that amazing? Does that sound familiar, though? Because our bodies are called what in Scripture? The temple. Thank you. Temple of the Holy Spirit. So individually, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in us. But corporately together, too, it says that he is building a dwelling place, a temple where God's spirit will dwell. Scripture also says that where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. So what does that tell you? It tells you that we need to be gathered together. That's why Pastor Tom was always so adamant about whenever the church doors are open to be out here to celebrate who God is together. There is power in gathering. We are better together. Amen. When Paul says that, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. It reminds me of my experience in concrete. I was in the concrete business for seven to eight years. I was part of a contracting team that poured floor slabs, like the slab that we're actually sitting on this morning in church. But not only did we do floors, we did foundations. And so we poured footers and concrete walls and things like that. And one thing that I learned was how important it is to set the corners of the buildings. Before you pour your foundation, you need to lay everything out. After the, the excavators and the diggers, you know, kind of excavate the foundation area, that's when the masons go in and pour the footers and set the block walls or pour a concrete wall so that things can be framed. The walls of this building and the roof can be set. And so I knew the importance of how important it is to get your corners right. Because if you 
a corner needs to be, what, 90 degrees, right? But if a corner was 91 or 89 or 92 degrees, by the time you reach the other end, that wall is going to be off. It needs to be straight. It needs to be square. And so Paul is talking about Jesus being that chief cornerstone. Being the chief cornerstone means that you're the first, or that stone is the first stone that is laid right on that corner. He's the one who sets it up. He's the one that everything else is built off of, and that's Jesus. That's pretty incredible. Two things that we learn from this metaphor is that Jesus is the foundation, the key to the whole building, the key to the whole deal. A chief cornerstone was the first laid and by which all other stones were arranged and measured. If the cornerstone is no good, the building is no good. We have a sure and perfect cornerstone in Jesus. So the community of Christians is not built upon us, This community of believers is built upon that sure, firm foundation in Christ. And thank God, because if it was built on us, that building would be far from perfect. It would probably collapse because we're far from perfect. This building imagery also means that you and I are living stones, not dead stones, living stones. And 1 Peter 2, 45 talks about we're being built into something greater than any of us could ever be on our own. This means that you fit in somewhere to the people of God, that you have a place and you have a value. And listen, if you don't feel valued this morning, I want to tell you right now, you are. God has made you perfect in his sight. You are perfect. Everything about you is perfect. You are valued. And if you don't feel that way, imagine the gifts and abilities that you have where God wants you to be plugged in to a loving family, a church family. And now we need to hear that more than ever. Amen. You are valued. You are loved. You fit in. Think about it. What value does a stone have all on its own? Being in construction for seven to eight years, I saw a ton of building material hit a job site. And they're usually stacked on pallets and arranged and organized in cubes, such as block or brick. And when they hit the ground, they start being taken off and then uh, put onto the building facade or wherever they're going to be used in the foundation on the outside of a building. This building actually has some beautiful brickwork on it too. And so when you think about those individual bricks being taken apart and then laid into that building, they're built on top of each other and next to each other, and they're held together by one another. Also on a job site, I would see a ton of material kind of get thrown to the wayside if it was imperfect, and it would be thrown into the dirt or the mud where it has no value. A brick by itself laying down on the ground has no value. But when it's taken off that pallet and put into that building, it's being fit together for a purpose, and each one of those is using each other to hold each other up. Being a part of a church doesn't just mean showing up on Sundays. Let me say that again. Being part of a church doesn't just mean showing up on Sundays. It means that your life is being built in with each other's lives. And we're doing life together with one another, with God on our side, with God next to us. This also means that we aren't dependent, that we are, excuse me, dependent on each other. One stone on top of another, next to each other. We can't do life on our own. We need each other. We are better together. God never intended for you to do this alone. He never intended for you to be an island unto yourself. 
He wants you to be a part of a loving community that loves him. That's what it means to be a part of the people of God, to depend on each other, to love one another, to serve each other. Three to four years ago, uh, God gave me a vision that I wanted to share with you. Um, Actually, a few of you may have heard this story, but about three to four years ago, God gave me a vision of what discipleship means. And he's actually showed me this almost on a daily basis. He kind of brings this to mind. About three to four years ago, he gave me a vision of a water glass. And it was a black backdrop. And you could see the crystal clear glass. And then flowing from top was living water into that glass. And as that glass filled up with that living water, it spilled out once it reached the top. But it didn't spill out onto ground or to the table It spilled out from the side into another glass. And that glass would fill up, and it would reach the top. And after it reached the top, it spilled out and spilled into what? Another glass. That, my church family, is discipleship. And that's what God wants you to do. He doesn't give you living water to keep it contained within yourself and just fill up. But as you get filled up, it spills out. There is nothing that can control that. When God fills you up, he expects it to be poured out. My friends, that's discipleship. That's what we need to do with each other. That living water isn't just meant for you. The gospel is not just about me. It's about we. Let that overflow spill out into each other's lives. It can be easy to think of Jesus as just being a part of our lives. I'm very good at compartmentalizing my life. How many of you do that as well? (laughs) Some hands are being raised. I see that. You have your little groups, your little compartments of life, right? And it can be easy to think of Jesus as just being part of your church life, but that's not the way that it's meant to be. That's not the way that God intended it to be. And to think that because we go to church, that makes us a part of a church family. But I want you to know the truth. The reality is, is that proximity is not the same as community. Proximity is not the same as community. Proximity is, again, being close with one another physically, you know, just being in kind of a close residence with maybe Mac, you know. But that's not what it's meant to be. It needs to be community. Being close with one another, again, rubbing shoulders together is not church. Proximity is an opportunity for community. The Bible is full of instructions on what our responsibilities are to one another. Let me say that again. The Bible is full of instructions on how to be with one another and our responsibilities with one another. James 5.16 talks about our responsibility to pray for one another and to be there to support one another in our struggles. Friends, this is a good and timely Bible passage for us in our time to pray for one another for our struggles. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this. It, says, tell, it tells us to encourage one another and to build one another up. And there's that word build there. It's a construction term. It means to edify one another, to build each other up in maturity, in Christ. Matthew 18 talks about the right way to handle things when we've been sinned against by another Christian. And I think this passage, obviously, is good instruction for us. How many of you are great with confrontation? Not really. 
But see, the thing is, is Matthew 18 doesn't talk just about confrontation or confronting someone. It talks about a resolution and a solution to that conflict. And it's good for us all to read that. (laughs) Being a part of this family means that no one is left out or separated or alone. But more than that, it means that we are led by the Spirit of God to work together on building God's kingdom rather than our own. The light of desire to build our own kingdom starts growing more and more dim the more and more we look to Jesus. Let me say that again. The light of desire to build your own kingdoms grows dimmer and dimmer the more that we put our hope and trust and focus on Jesus. Your will will start to mimic God's will. Your will would want to be God's will. The more and more you focus on Christ as our hearts are changed by Jesus and his gospel. In life, as I continue to walk with Jesus and I think about the gospel and meditate on it and think about how it has shaped my life, the story that I told you earlier about Jeff and Paul and myself starts taking on new meaning. Let me explain. You see, it reminds me of the parable of the vineyard workers. You guys familiar with that parable? Where the owner of the vineyard went to the marketplace throughout different times of the day to hire laborers. The Bible says that early in the morning, he went out and hired workers and agreed to pay them a day's wage, which was a denarius. He went out again, though, after the early morning. He went out at 9 a.m. and hired more laborers to work in his vineyard, agreeing to pay them what he says is a right and fair wage. And so the workers obliged, and they went and worked in his vineyard. But the owner of the vineyard went out and did this again at noon, at 3 o'clock, and then at 5 o'clock. And when evening came, he called to his supervisor, and he told them to pay all the workers starting from the last one hired down to the first one hired. And what was the wage that they were all paid? The same exact wage. That's right. Each worker was paid one denarius, no matter if they started working at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., all the way to 5 p.m. Jesus started the teaching of this parable by explaining that to his disciples that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Those workers received the same amount of pay even though they worked different hours. And just like Jeff received the same grade as Paul and I, even though Jeff hardly did any work on that science project in seventh grade, he still received an A, just like Paul and I received, even though he hardly did any work. (laughs) That irritates me. My hands hurt. As the worship team gets ready to come up to the platform, I also want to tell you this. The story of my friend Jeff also reminds me of what you and I actually have, which we don't deserve, that we didn't earn. You and I each are awarded unmerited favor as believers and followers of Jesus. But we did not earn our position in heaven by our own work. We didn't work on it with our own hands or by our good works or because our heart is so righteous. That's far from the truth. Our salvation was bought and paid for by a price. The pages of our sin record 
are marked up, ink-stained, and very unsightly. But as children of the Most High God, we can thank Jesus that he actually interjected and he traded his life for ours. He traded his spotless record for our stained record. And we can thank Jesus that he traded defeat for victory, the grave for life, and hell from heaven. And it's all because of him considering us first before himself. The gospel is about we, not just me. Jesus has us in mind before himself, and he still does because he intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. He's interceding for you because of his great love for you. As we close up this morning's message, I want to leave you with a challenge, church. I want to challenge you this morning before you leave today and to put this one practical step into practice. I want for you to set up a coffee date or a meal with someone in the church or even learn somebody's name that you don't know. I want you to maybe ask a question about their job or their family or their children or their parents. And I want you to put your out, yourself out there to challenge the norm to meet with somebody before you exit these doors. We're God's family and we're all in good company because we're in the hands of God. Let's pray.